I am very glad and proud to be here. Let me already begin with a serious topic, the suffering of the Korean people in the 20th century, which undoubtedly was immense. No wonder that, so I was told, the Koreans do everything to forget that time, especially, I mean, the time of Japanese occupation and go on with their lives. And again, I was told that the attitude of Korean people involves a profoundly Nietzschean, referring to Friedrich Nietzsche, Nietzschean inversion of the standard formula. I will forgive you, but I will never forget it. With regard to Japanese atrocities, I was told that you say, we will forget them, we try to forget them, but we will never forgive you. I think you are right. There is something deeply hypocritical in the formula, forgive but not forget. It sounds noble, this formula, but it is deeply manipulative, since, you know, the underlying logic is, I forgive you for what you did, but I will never forget it. That is to say, all the time I will remind you how guilty you are. Fortunately, I was told that your society is more and more penetrated by this postmodern attitude of feeling wounded and trying to get better, healing the wound. This, I think, has nothing to do with this authentic suffering that, uh, that you experienced. I really oppose this pseudo-psychoanalytic culture of everything that we experience is some kind of a wound, a trauma that we have to heal. I think that Wounds are really liberating at the same time. If you are, I mean, if there is a country which really try, try to protect their people from being wounded, it's North Korea. It's total isolation so that the external world will not wound them. I would like to begin with Franco Berardis, his report on his journey to Seoul. A long quote now. By the end of the 20th century, after decades of war, humiliation, starvation and horrific bombings, both the physical and the anthropological landscape of this country, Korea, had been reduced to a sort of devastated abstraction. At that point, human life and the city gave themselves with docility to the transforming hand of the highest form of contemporary nihilism. Korea is the ground zero of the world, a blueprint for the future of the planet. After colonization and wars, after dictatorship and starvation, the South Korean mind, liberated by the burden of the natural body, smoothly entered the digital sphere with a lower degree of cultural resistance than virtually any other population in the world. This, in my opinion, 
is the main source of the incredible economic performance that this country has staged in the years of the electronic revolution. In the emptied cultural space, the Korean experience is marked by an extreme degree of individualization and simultaneously it is headed towards the ultimate cabling of the collective mind. These lonely monarchs walk in the urban space in tender continuous interaction with the pictures, tweets, games coming out of their small screens, perfectly insulated and perfectly wired into the smooth interface of the flow. Here probably lies the explanation of the extraordinary propensity of Koreans, both young and middle-aged, to commit suicide. In the space of two generations, their condition has certainly improved by the point of view of revenue, nutrition, freedom, and possibility of traveling abroad. But the price of this improvement has been the desertification of daily life, the hyper-acceleration of rhythms, the extreme individualization of biographies, and work precariousness, which also means unbridled competition. Koreans look back to the condition of their grandparents and they cannot question the present alienation. But the present alienation is a different sort of hell. The intensification of the rhythm of work, the desertification of the landscape, and the virtualization of the emotional life are converging to create a level of loneliness and despair that is difficult to consciously refuse and oppose. End of quote. Berardi's portrait of South Korea, what they provide is the image of a place deprived of its history, a worldless place. Alain Badiou has reflected that we live in a social space which is progressively experienced as worldless. Even the fascist anti-Semitism opened up a world. It described its critical situation by positing an enemy, Jewish conspiracy. It named a goal and the means of achieving this goal. Fascism disclosed reality in a way which allowed its subjects to acquire some kind of global cognitive mapping. Dangers of capitalism, the entire world, it sustains a worldless ideological constellation. It deprives the large majority of people of any meaningful cognitive mapping. Capitalism is the first social and economic order which detotalizes meaning. It is not global at the level of meaning. There is no global capitalist worldview. The fundamental lesson of globalization is precisely that capitalism can accommodate itself to all civilizations, from Christian to Hindu or Buddhist, from West to East. Since in Europe, Modernization was spread over centuries. In Europe, had the time to accommodate ourselves to it, to soften the shattering impact of modernization, to soften it through the formation of new social narratives and myths. While some other societies, exemplarily 
the Muslim societies were exposed to this impact directly without a protective screen or a temporal delay so that their symbolic universe was perturbed much more brutally. These countries lost their symbolic ground with no time left to establish a new symbolic balance. No wonder then that the only way for some of these societies to avoid total breakdown was to erect in panic the shield of fundamentalism. This psychotic, delirious, incestuous reassertion of religion as a direct insight into the divine real, with all the terrifying consequences that such an assertion entails, up to the return with the vengeance of the obscene superego divinity demanding sacrifices. And I think that this rise of superego is another feature that postmodern perm liberal permissiveness shares with new religious fundamentalisms. Either sacrifice in permissivity or sacrifice on account of the divine fundamentalism. If there is no God, then everything is permitted. Jacques Lacan, as probably many of you know, turned this wisdom around. For him, it is exactly the opposite. If there is no God, then everything is prohibited. Or, if there is God, then everything is permitted. And I think it's clear what Lacan meant. On the one hand, imagine a religious fundamentalist. Isn't it that for him, precisely because he perceives himself as a direct instrument of divine will, he stands above normal moral concerns. I can do whatever I want because God is acting through me, so I don't have to, I can explode bombs, kill people, and so on. I'm not constrained by any ordinary moral considerations. A wonderful passage from Talmud, you know, Two rabbis, rabbis, Jewish priests, debate a theological point. And the one who is losing the argumentation calls God. He says, listen, let's call Jehovah God so that he will come and decide. But before he even starts to talk, the other rabbi, the one who was winning the argumentation, starts to shout at God, listen, you old idiot. You did your job. You created the world. You did it pretty badly. So now you did your job. Run away. Go away and leave us intelligent theologists to debate things seriously. And you know what's the beauty? You know what Jehovah answers? Oh my God, you are right. And he runs away. That's how we should relate to God if you ask me. Where do we... So again, I think that these explosions of collective enjoyment, like in rock, emphatic rock concerts and so on, pop music. This is quite seriously, for me, the return of the sacred. And I don't buy the naive answer, no, no, this is not authentic. I don't think there is a fundamental difference here. When you have this collective enthusiastic 
trans. It is, the sacred is here. And so my conclusion is that the sacred is not only a noble, nice thing. The sacred can also be a very terrifying thing. And you should know it, because you probably already guessed why I am saying this. It's that in the summer of 2012, the sacred did come also to your country in the form of Gangnam style. As a curiosity, it is worth noting that the Gangnam style video clip, did you know this, surpassed Justin Bieber's clip on YouTube, thus becoming the most watched YouTube clip of all times. It went over one billion. The song is, again, I claim, not only wildly popular, it also mobilizes people into a collective trance, with tens of thousands shouting and performing a dance that imitates horse riding, all in the same rhythm, with an intensity unseen from the times of early Beatles. What makes it interesting is the way it combines collective trance with self-irony. Words of the song and the staging of the video clip obviously make fun at the meaninglessness and vacuity of Gangnam style. This time not the songs, but literally the Gangnam life. And I know what it is, I'm staying there now. Some claim that they do this even in a subtly subversive way. But we are nonetheless entrenched, caught in the stupid marching rhythm, participating in this pure mimesis, imitating it. Gangnam style, I claim, is ideology, not in spite of the ironic distance towards what it's doing, but it's ideology because of this, disgustingly attractive. They love to hate it. You know, it's like you hear a certain melody and you are shocked how vulgar it is. But then you end up repeating it, it plays in your mind all the time, so the more you hate it, the more you finish up uh, uh, repeating it uh, all the time. So now I will say something really evil, but I take it very seriously. You know, it's easy to laugh at North Koreans for their mass staged rallies up there where they applaud the leader, cry and so on. Where? Well, they have their sac sacred rituals, you have yours. These are for me two sides of the same coin. Gangnam style on stadium spectacle and, uh, and Kim Jong-il spectacle or whatever. It may, this brings me to my central point. It may seem that in Korea, as well as elsewhere. Numerous forms of traditional wisdom survive to serve as a protective cushion against the shock of modernization. However, I claim it is easy to see how these remainders of old ideology are already transformed into ideological tools destined to facilitate rapid modernization like the so-called oriental spirituality, with its more gentle, balanced, holistic, ecological approach. It is not only that, what I ironically call Western Buddhism, this pop cultural phenomenon, preaching inner distance and indifference towards the frantic pace of market competition, is 
the most efficient way, I think, to fully participate in the capitalist dynamics. I think that one even cannot really say that this is just a Western vulgar falsification. I learned that, you know, the first course for business, the first courses, educational courses, for businessmen in Zen, Buddhism, were organized, I read in a biography of Daisetsu Teitaro Suzuki, immediately after World War II in Tokyo, where his idea was, again, to succeed in business competition with the crazy rhythm and so on, you should not take things too seriously, you should do it with an inner distance, you should be aware that this is only a game of appearances, and so on, and so on. Now I come to my next shocking point. Such an analysis of our Western crazy frantic rhythm of consumerism, and so on, the resistance of a world threatened by rapid modernization. World stands here for a specific horizon of meaning, for an entire civilization, or rather culture, with its daily rituals and manners, which are threatened by the post-historical commodification. Is this resistance conservatives? Many modern capitalists are saying, oh, workers' resistance is just an example of old 19th century attitudes persisting. Uh, Maybe. Why not? But I claim that it is today's mainstream, self-declared political and cultural conservatives who are not really conservative, fully endorsing capitalist, continuous self-revolutionaries, revolutionizing. Today's conservatives just want to make it more efficient by supplementing it with some traditional institutions. You know, like those teachers of oriental spirituality who claim go through a Buddhism course and you will be even more efficient on the market. A true conservative today is the one who fully admits the antagonisms of global capitalism, the one who rejects simple progressism, the one who is attentive to the dark obverse of progress. In this sense, if by conservative we mean the one who is not just celebrating rapid development, but who is also fully aware of what dimension of the past, which is a precious one, we are losing with progress, then my paradoxical conclusion is that today only a radical leftist can be a true conservative. So what should today's leftist conservative fight Four. Let me conclude with two brutal examples. First, one of the most depressive documentary films that I've ever seen, a Dutch documentary, Act of Killing, made by Joshua Oppenheimer in 2012. This film, shot in Medan, Indonesia, reports on a case of obscenity which reaches the extreme. It tells the story of a group of old uh, uh, anti-communist soldiers led by Anwar Congo, who are these ex-soldiers, now respected politicians, but uh, you remember in the 1966 
communist attempt to temp over and then Suharto strike back and their armed gang did a massive killing of almost two million and a half, mostly Chinese communist sympathizers. This guy led one of the gangs. Act of Killing, this documentary, is about killers who have won and the sort of society they have built. After they won, the communist rebellion was crashed. The terrible acts of these murderers were not relegated to the status of dirty secrets. On the contrary, they boast openly about the details of their massacre. I mean, if you watch the film, I warn you, it's uh, extremely offensive. Because it's simply breathtaking. You have these people, now elder, respected people, who simply openly talk about how it took us some time to discover what is the most practical way to rape a woman. Then we discovered that if you put her on a low table and somebody is holding her by her throat on the other side, is the most practical way to penetrate her or what is the most efficient way to torture men, how you should squeeze their testicles and so on and so on. And what makes the film so depressive is that, again, this is openly, publicly admitted. They talk about it. For me, the most obscene moment, you couldn't believe it, it's almost from some kind of science fiction dystopia, is when the film shows a real TV show on Indonesian state TV where... Anwar Kongo is asked about some technique of torture. And he explains how he invented a more practical, efficient way of torture. And then a nice young woman who is the moderator says something like, what an inventiveness you showed. A big round of applause for Mr. Anwar Kongo. You know, like it's an amusement show and so on and so on. I mean, then there is another very important point to this documentary. You know, it's difficult for people to be really evil. To be evil, you need some imaginary scenario. You have to provide a fictional identification for you. In this case, this identification is provided by American films, and I don't blame American films for this. Anwar and Kid Friends said that when they were doing these horrible things, beating people, raping women, torturing suspected communists, that they identified with American film noir heroes like Humphrey Bogart and so on. They imagined themselves as heroes of noir. I find this very interesting how you always need this kind of imaginary identification. It's very difficult to be uh, directly evil. What I find so terrifying is this in this film is that it provides maybe the most horrible, at least for my taste, portray of our moral vacuum. You know, even the Nazis, when they did the Holocaust, they kept it secret, you know. Like, we will not boast about it in the public. Here, you go to a TV show and you openly present how you tortured and so on and so on, and uh, no, no one seems uh, to care. Uh, now, 
How can this happen? Let me make it clear here. I am not blaming Hollywood like, oh, it's the influence of Hollywood. I'm not also not blaming Indonesian backwardness and so on and so on. I think it's simply the impact or ethical impact of global capitalism. We should follow here the insight of Walter Benjamin about capitalism as a form of religion. Listen, if you ever met, and I did, a true capitalist who can be, as a businessman, extremely ruthless, brutal, you will immediately see that he is not a hedonist. You know, a true capitalist works day and night to multiply his fortune and so on and so on. He, he is usually ruined, gets a heart attack, whatever. And this is, I think, what Walter Benjamin meant. A capitalist sacrifices his or her pleasures even more than we who work for him. This is why I also disagree where those who fight for ecology claim we should learn to abandon, to get over our egotism and develop a feeling of solidarity for higher values, self-sacrifice. No, I think that imagine a capitalist who is destroying environment. I mean, in the long term, it will even hurt him. My reproach to him is that he is not enough of, an eg of a rational egotist. He is so dedicated to his goal, which is the multiplication, circulation of capital, that he is ready to ruin the entire world. It, just that the, the capital circulates, just that it goes on. So again, we should attack capitalism not as brutal hedonism, but as the wrong kind of perverse fanatical dedication. If anything, we need today more of simple egotist utilitarian uh, concerns. Self-interested egotism is not the brutal fact of our societies, but its ideology. The ideology which was already described by Hegel in his Phenomenology of Spirit, where he uses a wonderful expression, das geistige Tierreich, the spiritual kingdom of animals. You know what's so-called uh, uh, cunning of reason or the hidden invisible hand of the market. The idea is that the more we are, that's capitalist ideology, the more you are egotist on the market, the more society profits. It's this cynical view that the greatest catastrophes always happen when you try to do something good. Then the result is catastrophic. But in capitalism, the more you care only for yourself, the more you work for the common good. Capital, to oppose capitalist egotism to some kind of global sense of community and so on and so on. No. The problem is not that people are egotists. The problem is the spiritual totality which makes them egotists. I was told by a friend from China, Michael Yuan, crazy thing that happened half a decade ago in Nanjing. An elderly woman fell from the bus when the bus stops and a kind young guy stepped out when 
he saw that she fell down, she was 65 old, she, he stepped out and helped her to get up, and then when he saw that she is hurt, he gave her some money to take taxi to the hospital and so on. Two weeks later, because they probably exchanged addresses, whatever, this guy got a call from the court. The woman prosecuted him for pushing her down. And her reasoning was this one. Why would an ordinary guy help me as much as this guy did? No normal person would help an older woman who falls down. It must have been the only rational explanation is that he felt guilty because he pushed me down. And the shock is that the court gave her right. The, the man uh, had to pay quite a lot of amount of money because the court says that, I quote, according to common sense, Peng Yu, this was the guy's name, uh, helped the lady because he has previously knocked her over. A normal person would not be as kind as Peng Yu claimed he was. Now, I find this extraordinary, how you are good, but it's considered not normal, surprising. Uh, what is going on here? Again, I claim that this situation is much more complex than it appears. It's not simply people are egotist, it's even, even when you are good, the social standards are already egotist. And my friend Michael Yuen wrote to me that we should read such incidents against the background of a general opinion poll that they made in China recently, where people were asked, you walk along the street and young people between 20 and 30 were asked, and you see an old person there wounded, dying. Would you stop or not? 87% of young people said no, we would pass by. And to avoid a misunderstanding, it was specified that that person is dying alone there. So it's not that there is a criminal beating someone and you risk your life helping the wounded. No, it would be perfectly safe. But then, interestingly, when they specified the question, under what conditions you would help the wounded person, they said, I would first look around if there is a, that CCTV, whatever, camera, I would help it. I claim what happens here is... Uh, this is a little bit more complex philosophical idea, a redefinition of public space. What is disappearing today is not privacy, I think, but public space. We are more and more getting uh, in a state where even what once we considered public spaces. What do I mean by this? Let me give you another example which may sound weird from hardcore pornography. A friend told me that recently there is in Europe, I don't know what happens here, uh, a new tendency which is so-called public sex in hardcore pornography. And it's pretty depressing. A friend showed me some clips. This is strangely enough especially popular in Hungary and Poland. 
for example, I saw one clip where a couple, man and woman, enters, they enter a streetcar, public transport. The car is half empty, and they sit down at a free chair and simply undress and start to have sex. It's obviously a non-staged situation. They really did it. And what shocked me is how people, how did ordinary people around react to it? Okay, a little bit, they looked strangely, and then after a couple of seconds, they simply went on, reading newspapers or whatever. You know what I mean? Even if they were out in the open, they still considered it part of the private space. Which is why, I have to cut it short here, which is why, again, I don't think that the threat today is the disappearance of privacy. You know, in the sense of, I don't know, with digital media and so on, those in power can control us. No, what is even more threatening, I think, is the disappearance of public space proper, a common space of all of us where we can communicate. You know where you can feel this difference? It may appear, again, a dirty one. I claim that there is a great difference, although it may appear similar, between the good old exhibitionist, you know that, who does, you know that legendary gesture of you open your coat and you show your organ to someone who is passing by, and to posting your naked photos on, on the web. When you do it, what the traditional exhibitionist does it, it's still public space. You expose yourself to some public. But even if you are wired, connected to millions, when you post your naked photos on the net, it somehow remains private and solipsistic, even if millions watch you. It's not public space proper. And allow me to conclude briefly, this is why I claim, now my last political point, whistleblowers like Edward Snowden should be today unconditionally Defended. They don't defend our privacy, as people claim often. They defend the public space. The first thing to say about Snowden, Assange, uh, uh, Manning, and so on, is that we should celebrate them not simply because their acts annoy and embarrass United States Secret Service and so on, but for a much more fundamental reason. What Snowden disclosed is something that not only United States, but probably all other great and not so great powers, from China to Russia, from Germany to Israel, are doing. We, we didn't learn really anything new from Manning or Snowden. But they compelled us, they pushed us into a situation where we cannot ignore it. But you know, what happens when you, somebody gives you some shots, photos, and you see really how it goes on, this changes everything. So again, the lesson of Snowden's revelations, I think, is global. The lesson is how, with the digitalization of our lives, how the public sphere gets privatized. Privatized in, the, in what sense? Not only in the sense of private companies control it, but 
My reference is here, Immanuel Kant, the great German philosopher, who, in his famous text, What is Enlightenment?, opposed public and private use of reason. But in a very paradoxical way. For Kant, state reasoning, state machinery, state bureaucracy is not public but private because they stand for particular interests. Only pure thinking, philosophy, sciences are public. Public means we engage in a debate which is not limited by any collective, even if collected, especially if collective, private concerns. So again, for Kant, the example of private use of reason is precisely state administration and its reasoning. Now in Europe, where they are imposing a reform of higher education, as they are saying, we don't need philosophers who are doing their useless job. We need sciences to deliver useful knowledge. And in a debate in France, my opponent explained this to me. Like he said, let's say there are demonstrations in the suburb of Paris. We need psychologists to tell us how to pacify the crowd. We need sociologists and urbanists to tell us how to build roads so that demonstrations can be more easily controlled and so on and so on. What's the problem with this? This is the job of experts. Experts are people who are solving problems defined by others. But I think this is not true intellectual work. True intellectual work begins not when you solve problems formulated by others, but when you question the problems themselves, like, why this problem? Is this the right way to approach the problem? And so on and so on. It's something much more radical. And this is disappearing. What I claim is that this is the big struggle of digital media today. Will Internet be the space of public reason or will it become the space where collectivized monarchs will play their private games? You know, the danger of Internet is that it's falsely transparent. The more we think we control it, the more the clouds where all the informations are gathered control us. So, two dangers I see here. The first danger is how Internet relates to state secrets. If there is something to be learned from Snowden's discoveries, is that we don't simply have a secret, but as a rule, more and more, what is a secret is a secret in itself. So that you, it's not only that there are prohibitions, but you don't even know what really is prohibited and what not, because this in itself is prohibited. This happened already years ago in People's Republic on China, I remember. It was reported in the media that somebody was accused of doing something, deploying some, uh, circulating some informations, and when he asked, okay, but what exactly am I guilty of? He was told, we cannot tell you this because this is a state secret, and so on. Like, you know, what is secret is in itself a secret. And again, I don't blame China here, of course I do. 
But what I'm saying is there. It just, we saw it in open what is more and more uh, getting universal. The second thing is, people usually say, isn't it horrible that those in power through digital control and so on learn everything about us? No. I think the danger is somewhere else. You know, the point is not that they know too much, but that by knowing too much, they know nothing. Machines are stupid. The more they know, the more they, state agencies and so on, don't know what to do with what they know. And this makes it more dangerous for us. Because you don't know how they will interpret all the data collected on us. You may find yourself on a terrorist list without even doing anything and so on. Anecdote about from United States in 1930s when William Randolph Hearst, you know, the model for Orson Welles' Citizen Kane, he had editor-in-chief of one of his newspapers did such a good work that Hearst asked him, why don't you take a vacation? And the editor answered him, well, I'm afraid to take a vacation. Why? He said, first, I'm afraid that if I leave, things would fall, will fall apart. Things will not function well. And Hearst answered him, listen, no problem. You organize things so well that if you go away, everything will function smoothly as before. Then the editor said, that's what I'm even more afraid of. You know, that like, nobody will even notice and you will discover that you don't need me. And it's something the same with information. You know, it's horrible to think that they know all about us, but if they cannot know all about us, it's even more horrible. Because we can get caught into something that we don't know about and so on. To really conclude now, I want to say that uh, whistleblowers play a crucial role in keeping what Kant called public reason alive. Why are they so important? Because usually whistleblowers were celebrated as people from corrupted private companies who inform the state and the public about criminal activities of that society. For example, you know, in tobacco companies, whistleblowers made it public that tobacco companies are even adding addictives to cigarettes and so on and so on. That's easy, but now this new type of whistleblowers are not just denouncing private companies to public institutions, they are denouncing to broader public, even public institutions themselves in the sense of uh, state apparatuses and so on. Which is why I think that we should not use this Snowden scandal and Manning Assange only for cheap anti-Americanism. I'm totally opposed to cheap anti-Americanism and so on. Problems are much more radical. That's why I think people like Manning, Snowden, and so on are important. And especially, we shouldn't limit this to, oh, now people are telling me, but wait a minute, Snowden now sold to Putin, to the Russians. Yes, because he didn't have any other way to do it, which is why my proposal was to build an international. My proposal was to construct an international network which would take care, and it can be done, of these people, so that they 
whistleblowers will not be obliged just to play one state against the other. I am not waiting for a big revolution. We can start with small things, without any utopian hopes, but they mean something. So now, really, one minute to conclude, I will give you a funny idea, which is totally small, ridiculous, but I liked it. Uh, half a year ago, I visited Sao Paulo, Brazil. They took me to a prostitution club. Oh, I didn't. Don't be afraid. I didn't use it. But it was worth visiting. Why? It's an extremely interesting. It's a bar, cafeteria, which everyone knows it's where you get prostitutes. Then the prostitutes who usually there are because a university is close, educated young women. They choose you. They look at you, and if some of the girls find you tolerably attractive, she comes to you and starts a conversation with you. And this conversation is usually pretty intellectual. They ask you one customer, he admitted to Mehmet, told me he was asked about Jacques Lacan even. And if they are satisfied with this, then they tell you, okay, that's my price, if you want, we go to my room. Okay, it's ridiculous, insignificant, but my God, there is something I like in it. I'm opposed to prostitution, but if we cannot get rid of it, isn't it nice at least that the woman can make a choice, that the woman should appreciate you, not the other way around? So, again, don't Usually people think that I wait for some big, mystical, violent revolution. No. Small things can be done at all times, and the point of social dynamics is precisely that you never know what small thing can trigger. You know, it's always this logic of avalanche. You do something small, and you never know what will happen. We cannot plan these things. I'm grateful for your patience that you suffered my neurotic ramblings. Thank you very much.